So one commentator described this passage this morning, and I found it very uh, interesting. Um, he described this passage as filled with death, full of deceit, intrigue, and unkindness, murder, and general mayhem interspersed with elements of bravery and enterprise, most told in this vivid style with colorful detail that suggests the writer, if not present, had been privileged to eyewitness accounts. And so when we read these historical narratives, we see such improbable redemption from so many people. And yet we see that today in our, in our world. Um, and we can likely see ourselves in, old, in the Old Testament. But we can also learn from these 3,000-year-old um, events how God was revealing himself to the people and how they responded to him or how they didn't respond to him. It's helpful for how we live our lives today. And so in this passage, we take ourselves back 3,000 years ago and we try to understand the settings, we try to understand the characters, the plots, and we try and see and learn together as God pursues the people that he wants to call his own. And though we know there's this big difference between now and 3,000 years ago, we read these and we still should seek and try to see this redeeming God. As we read, we might find our own vulnerabilities and we might find our own sinfulness in these Old Testament passages. But as we do that, we pray that the Holy Spirit will lead us to the gospel and we can hear the call of God and how he wants us to respond to these Old, Old Testament passages. As I was um, going through it, I found some things I thought might be helpful for us. And we'll touch on those at the very end. And, but as we go through this, we want to look at this, this story of conflict that's been going on. This division among the people of God. And one of the main centerpieces here is this man, Abner. We learned last week that he is the commander of Saul's army. And under Saul, Abner had hunted David and, and others and tried to kill him. And if you've been with, his, uh, been with us here for a while, we know that Saul is now dead. And one of the first things that, that Abner does is, is appoint his son, Ishbosheth, as king over Israel. And there was no good intention here when he did that. If there was, he would have accepted David as the real king. Before Abner made Isbosheth king, we heard very little of him, or know very little of him. I did find out what his name means. Do any of you know? Man of shame. So we have two kings. We have one in the northern region, appointed by man, appointed by Abner. And we have another king appointed in the southern region, Appointed by God, which is David. And so the nation of Israel now has this controversy on who is the true king. Abner was very loyal to Saul. His loyalty ran high. He stood with him. He's been the power behind Israel since Saul's death. And there's no doubt that Abner knew that, that God, through the prophet Samuel, wanted Saul removed from the kingdom. But he was determined to make Saul's surviving son, the king. 
He knew they could not be without one, and he wanted control over it. And Isbosheth is really just a tool or a puppet, as Mike said last week, I believe, for Abner to use. But Isbosheth also needs Abner's support, and it will only last as long as he has that. So the next move on Abner's part, he takes his men down to Gibeon. And David is in Hebron. It tells us this at the start of chapter 2. This is where God sent him after he inquired of the Lord, where should I go? So David and his men are south, and Mahanaim is north. So what Abner and his Bosheth are doing by bringing their men down is clearly threatening to David. So then we introduce Joab into this, another main character, David's army commander. And he's not going to sit around and be passive about this. He's going to take his men down, and they're going to meet together at Gibeon, and things are going to get out of control, and we're going to see this conflict. And so I I use that word conflict, and so as we we go through this, this historical story, let's try to search our hearts as I did going through it and see if there's an area in your life that's full of this tenseness that might possibly escalate eventually into a bigger conflict, whatever that might look like to you. So let's get into the text, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. It says, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servant of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaham to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So we have Joab and his two brothers, Abishai, Asahel, David's nephews, the sons of his sister, right, Zuriah. And we met Abishai back in chapter 26. He went into the camp with David when the Israelites were sleeping, if you remember that. The phrase went out that he's speaking of in 1213 speaks of going out to war. Went out, and it was used in 1 Samuel speaking of the Philistines when they went out to war. So Abner and his men, they're getting close to intruding into the territory of David. Joab takes his men down. Abner is clear to the aggressor here. He's going to go down to meet him, and Joab is going to meet him on the other side. And so they have this standoff at this pool of Gibeon. Have, ever you, have any of you ever been here? I found it quite, quite interesting uh, trying to dig out pictures. There's actually a, a stairwell, if you see it, that goes down. And um, this apparently was actually unearthed in 1957, and it was thought to be a reservoir that was intended to hold water, and later it was learned that it served as a stairway leading down to a source of water underneath the city. So if you can picture these men on each side of that, and I'm imagining it's full of water. Now, how they started to attack each other, I don't know. It doesn't really tell us, but I'm assuming that they moved. They didn't go across the water. Um... So you have one group on one side and one group on the other. 
And this sitting down presents this intriguing image. And at this point, Abner and Joab are really just spectators. It's a captivating exchange between these two men who are actually quite a bit alike. They're both military. They're both strong soldiers. They're both loyal to their king. And again, Abner takes the aggressive role. He says, let the young men arise. Like he's selecting some type of contest between the two. And we know, if you've read this passage, that it's a contest that's going to get very violent. So then they arose in verse 15, and they passed over by number. Twelve for Benjamin, and his Bosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. Verse 16, and each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. And so they fell down together. Therefore, that place is called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And verse 17, and the battle was very fierce that day. Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So they just draw their swords and start killing each other. Both sides do the same thing. This is a very interesting contest, what they did. They grab someone from the opposite side of the head, they thrust their sword into their side, and they all die. All 24 of them died in just this one battle. And this is just the beginning of more violence to come. And both sides are equally to blame for this. This um, Helkath Hazarim, there's been various ways of um, interpreting the name and one of them being field of swords seems appropriate for what took place. Verse 17, it tells us the battle was fierce, meaning violent. And as we put ourselves in this historical chapter, we know that there's wars that are going on around us, but do we, do we think about them that much here in our country? And so we think about what was happening here. These, these, these men are violent. They're killing each other. Two armies of men fighting with great fierceness, and David's men prevail. Defeat for Abner and his men. There's such a loss of life in this self-driven war that was going on. And nothing is really being settled. Just imagine this epic sequence of events, but it just continues on. So 18 and 19, it says, And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. You guys know what a gazelle looks like? I'm going to show you. Look at that. This is how they are describing him. Swift as foot as a gazelle. So these three men were, were David's nephews, okay? His sister's sons, Joab being not just his commander, I mean, not just his nephew, but his chief commander. And we're going to hear more about Abishai later on in this book as he actually becomes a very, very fierce 
a warrior. So you wonder, they've had this big defeat, and did they need to continue to go after Abner? It tells us that, that Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Joab set out on a mission to defend David. And when Abner, what was left of him and his men, they fled. Did they need to pursue them? I like that picture. I'm going to leave it up there. Now the sto- but the story now turns to the three nephews. The three nephews. Mainly Asahel. It tells us he had the speed of this wild gazelle. So he was a fast runner. And he decides that he's going to chase this experienced military commander, Abner. And he runs him down. He pursues him. Asahel pursues Abner in verse 19. As he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. So Asahel identifies himself. When Abner asked him, and then in verse 21, he tells him, see somebody else. Kill them. Take their spoil. Take their loot. Abner is trying to distract him. It would be better, Asahel, if you went after one of my men instead, because I don't want to kill you. But he continued to pursue him. Killing Abner would be a great prize. And he was focused on one thing, and that was chasing him down. In verse 22, and Abner said again, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. All the way out his back. This is not a movie. This is real. He forced the issue and he refused to stop. And between the speed he was running and the thrust of the spear, it went through him and out his backside, killing him immediately. And David's men saw this. And all who came to the place where he had fallen stood still. What in the world just happened? David's nephew, King David's nephew, is now dead. And I love how the author drew our attention to his young man's talent, his speed, his swiftness, his gift like a gazelle. And with all that talent, he had the hope of catching him. And he did get close. 
close enough for Abner at least to shout to him. He was determined. And determination sometimes is a really, really good thing. But it's not always the case. Perhaps he was proud of this gift of speed and he was overconfident. Abner tried to tell him, this is not in your best interest. Choose somebody else to kill. I don't want to kill you. These Abners also were how furious Joab would be. There would be revenge if he killed him. But he forced them into it. Matthew Henry said this of Asahel. He said, Asahel's swiftness which he presumed so much upon, did him no service, but hastened his end. So let's pick it up at verse 24. It says, But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia in the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on top of the hill. So they continued the pursuit. There's more than defending the kingdom of David now. There's, there's some payback. There's some revenge for killing Asahel. This conflict has now intensified to a whole new level. Where or when will this end? It's been a terrible, awful day of carnage. And now it tells us that the sun is going down. I love the historic narrative in, in, or the, in, in verse 25. Um, the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner. And they're at the top of this hill, one group. And so they're looking down now. Joab and his men pursue him, pursue them to the top of the hill. And you, you would think that being at the top would be a very good defensive spot. You can picture them gathered around, standing behind their commander, looking down at Joab and his men. And at this point, Abner and his men have been severely beaten and on the run. And somehow they have managed to regroup, regather reinforcements, I don't know. But here they are, you have this tense moment. They're gathered behind their leader and they're ready to go at it again. In verse 26, Abner makes an appeal to Joab. He presents Joab with three questions. Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do we have to have violence all the time? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? Joab, this isn't going to have a good outcome. It's not going to go well for anybody. How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Joab, tell your men to stand down. How much, how much longer shall this bloodshed go on? 
Is Abner being hypocritical? Possibly. He started this. And this guy Abner is far from being a decent human being. In fact, he, he was a bad dude. But even bad individuals can do the right things at times. And at this, what he's doing here is actually the right move. He made an unwise suggestion back at the beginning of this with this 12-on-12 this 12 12 competition, even though Joab did go along with it. And it led to so much bloodshed, but now he's doing something right. And Joab hears him out, and he has his men stand down. And in verse 27, it says, And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken... Surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. As God lives. Interesting, this is the only time God is mentioned in this passage. What a difference from the beginning, from the beginning of, 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 cha- of this chapter that Mike preached on, where David inquired of the Lord at the start of chapter 2. David inquired of the Lord and said, Shall I go up into the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And the Lord tells him, Hebron. What a difference. David here, David is seeking God earnestly. It's a good lesson for us. Seems sometimes we we forget about God and leave him out of big decisions in our life. And then things can go south, sometimes quickly. Abner doesn't inquire at all of the Lord. And Joab merely just mentions it as if he's swearing by God, as God lives. As God lives. So in verse 28, Joab has his men stand down. They blow the trumpet and everyone, everyone stops. Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more. Nor did they fight any more. And in verse 29, it says, Abner and his men went all that night through Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, marching the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. They departed. They marched through the night. And they traveled back to where they started from in verse 1. Job returned from the pursuit of Abner in verse 30. And when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men beside Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. It's a lot of casualties on both sides. 360. Abner's men's. What a lopsided battle. Was it really, was it really, really necessary? In the last verse it says, and they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night. And the day broke upon them at Hebron. And most of the time when Soldiers are buried, they're buried right there on the spot. But due to his relationship with with David, he was taken to the tomb of his father, which is Zariah's husband, right? And and so 
Joab showed some great restraint here at the end. His brother was killed. He probably could have destroyed Abner and his men, but yet he chose to stop, and he clearly had the upper hand. And so Joab and his men, they march all night, returning to Hebron by daybreak. So we see some peace in the end of this passage. We see some peace, right? But it's a, it's a very vulnerable type of peace. This war is, is not going to end. And you, it can make you wonder if it's ever going to get settled. So the nation of Israel was in this huge turmoil of controversy on who is the king. And we should learn how they react with violence, with death, with deceit, and more. And I don't think that's how Christians should react to conflict. And be nice if we never had to deal with conflict. And we're not going to have a conflict class right now because I, I wouldn't know how to give it. But I do know how we should respond to conflict in our life. And there's certain characteristics that, that should be part of our life and kind of help us roadmap it or approach it. We know we should have compassion. We should know we should have kindness to the other person. We know we should be humble Show gentleness and patience. And so, when we are in a conflict with someone, and, or we have this big war that's going on in our soul with somebody or something, a family member, another brother or sister in Christ, we need to get it resolved, but in a biblical way. God has made us one with our brothers and sisters in Jesus, and, and we are here today as one body in, in the Lord. And I would say the same thing if you have a conflict with an unbeliever. Ultimately, we can't achieve any of good, healthy communication without God's grace. Colossians 4, 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This, this young man, Asahel, I'm going to go back to him, was given this amazing, amazing gift, a gift of speed, like a gazelle. I can't imagine. And he seemed to put so much confidence in the way he chased Abner down. But it also got him killed. Another commentator said that Asahel failed to realize that when we are at our proudest, we are actually at our most vulnerable. There's a danger of being overconfident with our abilities that God has given us. And sometimes pride can come into that. There's a book called Spiritual Leadership written by Oswald Sanders. And he says that pride takes many forms, but spiritual pride is the most grievous. 
And to become proud of spiritual gifts is to forget all that God has given us. I was drawn to a passage in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 10. When the 72 had been sent out and they're they're returning, they'd been sent out by Jesus, and they came back and they exclaimed to Christ, they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. Wouldn't we all be excited? Yes, very exciting. How could we contain that? We would want to express that excitement. But look at how Jesus reacts. First, in verse 18 of that passage, he seems to affirm, affirm them. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. But then in verse 20, I think he cautions them. Jesus goes on and he says, nevertheless, you got to love this guy. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He isn't telling them not to celebrate, but he wants them to celebrate in the right thing, meaning their salvation. He wants them to keep their pride in check. And these words are, should be a game changer for us if we struggle with overconfidence with the gifting that God has given us. Our greatest joy should always be what he has done for us, and we shouldn't be dazzled at all by our own abilities. So when we think about Asahel chasing Abner, he was, seemed so obsessed with catching him and killing him. He couldn't let it go. Abner warned him twice, I don't want to kill you. And Asahel ended up destroying himself. And I don't think you could just call his death another casualty. If you look at this big picture, the reaction, think of Joab and Abishai's face when they saw him lying there dead with a spear through him going out his back. How would your reaction be? What would your face look like? I'd be mad. I would be angry, and I would also be sullen. And his death most likely fueled their anger. And now it was more than just defending David's kingdom. It's hard when someone hurts us. It's hard when something goes against us, that somebody's wronged us, or someone we love that it happened to. And I, human nature, I believe, just wants to strike back, payback, revenge, with whatever it might look like. Justice and revenge are not the same thing. And a lot of what culture tells us today is that, is that forgiveness and kindness are weak. I have someone very close to me who says, don't be a patsy. Don't be a patsy. God doesn't, he doesn't tell us to be doormats, but he does tell us to act the opposite of our culture. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. Could you imagine 
Joab forgiving him? We'll find out more about that in the coming weeks. Mark eleven twenty five. and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So I think if we look at the very start of chapter 3, the very first verse, right? It says there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. I like that verse. It tell, to me, this is how I read that verse. It tells me that Abner's battle with the house of David is pretty pointless because he's fighting against the kingdom of God. And he's not going to win. And so, closing this, when we think about that today, God is continuing to establish his kingdom. It's never going to end. He will. And there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be battles that we're going to be in and people around us are going to be in. But the best battle was already won for us, right? The best battle was won for us on the cross. There was a war been won. And Jesus cried out. He says, it is finished. It is finished. That is really, really good news. So let's, will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these historical stories that we can learn so much from about ourselves and our vulnerabilities and how we live today and our sinfulness, Lord. Help us to read these passages and put ourselves there and find, find ourselves there, Lord, but yet we know that we have been forgiven and we have your grace and your love. So we thank you that we could come together and share your word and speak of it in freedom today. Let's bless these people as they leave. Help them to um, think of this passage and see where maybe they might have a conflict in their life, Lord, that um, needs to be resolved but resolved in a biblical way. In Jesus' name, amen.